Recorded live. Hi, this is Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. It's Christy. Hey, Christy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Um, obviously, I'm going to record this because it's for the podcast, but I just wanted to let you know that we're recording. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do is um, I'll ask you a question, and then I'm going to put myself on mute so that I just get your audio recorded. Um, so you're not going to hear me going, mm-hmm, yes, but I actually am doing that. And then it might take me a second when you finish talking to get to the next question. So I just want to let you know if there's some pauses, that's why. Okay. Do you have any questions? And is this, is this going to, is this, are, do you do any editing or does this get like recorded in its entirety and then that's the podcast? No, so we're, I'm going to edit the, um, I'm going to edit the interview. And um, so if you have like a, you start a sentence and then you realize that you want to say it a different way. You can just stop and just start over, and then I can just edit out the stuff that we don't want to use. So okay. no, it's not, yeah, so it's going to be um, edited. And once again, this is for a consumer audience, so it's really about, you know, how OT can help people with autism for people okay. who might not know about OT's role. Okay. All right, so I wanted to actually just get started with um, the film Life Animated, and I wanted to see if you could just kind of tell me um, what was your role with working on that educator's guide, and how did you get involved with the film? Okay. Um, well, we got involved in the film when my colleagues and I were asked to screen the film before it came out uh, and provide feedback to the producers for our, for an educational audience, for teachers, um, et cetera, and take a look at the film with that lens of therapists and teachers and what information they might want to know. Because I, I believe the producers were looking at it when they distributed the film. They want to distribute it and have, make it available to individuals that are working with people with autism in the schools, for example. So that's how we got involved with the film. And we went and we screened it. And after we screened it, um, we began talking to the producers and thought that we really would like to create a curriculum guide for educators that highlighted some of the issues from the film and also challenged uh, the viewer to think about some some questions around strengths and interests um, that they may not have thought about. So we made the guide specifically for teachers and related service uh, providers. Okay, great. And um, so with the Oscar nomination, have you been in touch? Are they really excited about that news? 
Yeah, they are. They are. Um, they're very excited about the news, and they also really um, are. I think I'm getting 5,000 guides delivered here. They're excited about getting the curriculum guide into the hands of a lot of people that are watching the film because it gives some questions to reflect, um, but they are very excited. The producers are very excited. I know I presented at an autism conference with Ron Suskin, and he obviously is very excited, and I'm sure Owen is. That's great. And so is it in theaters or is it a documentary that people can screen online? How does how can people find the film? You know, I think it's oh, that that's one that I'm going to have to say I'm not quite sure. I think it's um it's not oh, you know, I'd have to look it up, Stephanie. I can I can look it up. Yeah, that's, that's something that's something that and if you want me to kind of call back in that answer, I can, but I don't want to say something that's not accurate. I know it was in theaters, and then, then it was available for streaming. But if you go on their website, Life Animated, um, you can see. Okay, yeah, I can look can, that. That's not a problem. Like I have a, I have a copy that I have permission to use to show clips. Um, I just can't do like a full screening at the university, you know, um, so unless I buy a license. But since we did the oh. animators, since we did the curriculum guide, um, I can show clips. Awesome. So I want to switch gears a little bit now about OT's role with autism. And so before we get into OT's role, I feel like I wanted to get your opinion on um, as autism becomes better known among the general public, what are some misperceptions that you notice that people have about autism and people with autism? You know, that's a great question. I think that there are a lot of misperceptions um, that affect uh, many individuals with with autism and how we view their abilities um, in many different ways. And I'll give you a couple examples. So I think this idea that um, individuals that are nonverbal um, or non-speaking, which I think is a more respectful term, um, have certain cognitive limitations, I do think that's a misperception. And I think that that feeds into this narrative that we've had about high functioning versus low functioning. So there's a group that a lot of professionals will classify and categorize as low functioning. You know, um, Owen from the movie would actually have been classified as low functioning. Yet for many of these individuals, they don't have access to a reliable means of communication. So they present, and I don't like the terms low functioning and high functioning because I work with individuals uh, that, for example, would be considered low functioning by the IQ testing, which is, we know, not a valid in indicator for individuals that are non-speaking when tested. They're considered low functioning by their behavior, by their IQ testing, yet if they have a communication system that is reliable and universally understandable, um, I work with many of these individuals that are in college and straight-A students. So because they have the ability to communicate, they, they went from low functioning as we define them to having many more opportunities. But if we classify individuals as low functioning, then we program to that. And I think that's a huge problem a huge problem uh, with autism on that end. Similarly to individuals that we classify as high functioning, which we think of as uh, individuals that might have been diagnosed with Asperger's in the old uh, dsm 4 conceptualization, um, they can have language, they can be very bright, yet they can have crippling anxiety and very poor problem-solving skills and not able to function or 
maintain a job or hold down a job. Um, yet we think because they have language and a normal or even higher IQ, they don't need supports because they're high functioning. And so I think on both of those ends, you have incredible um, misperceptions. I also think, and I know I'm rambling, I also think that uh, we've, we have viewed so many of the behaviors through a deficit-based lens uh, for these individuals that has also impacted our ability to really improve their quality of life. And by that I mean, if, I, if you have a restricted interest, for example, and um, you are very focused on Disney or on dinosaurs or on subways, uh, which many of our kids in New York City are, um, that's viewed as something bad that you have to stop talking about, that you, we then reward you when you no longer talk about that from different paradigms of intervention. And it's just wrong. Um, these, are, these, are, these are things and interests that if we frame them a different way, we can really utilize them in a profoundly different way that validates that dinosaurs are important to that little guy, trains are important to that little guy or girl. And that might be a means to really access communication, engagement, play, and then um, what we're doing now using interest to really access career pathways. So I, there's a lot of misperceptions. I, there's also, and, I, and again, I know I'm going on and I know you're going to edit this, but this idea of uh, lack of theory of mind or taking another one's perspective or having empathy. You know, many individuals with autism that I, that I work with and collaborate with are profoundly empathetic um, to the point of uh, probably more empathetic than many other people I know. And there's a sensitivity there that um, you don't see that is sometimes overwhelming for that individual. And so this idea that they don't have theory of mind and they're not empathetic and they can't take someone else's perspective, that's not necessarily a deficit as, a, as more of a difference. So I think a lot of these things that we label as a deficit that must be fixed, if we would begin to look at them as a, as a yes, challenging areas, but then also potential strengths within those challenging areas. And that's actually a really good segue because my next question is about um, what is a strengths-based approach and how is it different from the deficit-based? And maybe you could describe some examples of what it actually looks like in practice. Sure, sure. Um, so a strength-based approach, or also called an abilities-based model, really um, doesn't ignore the, the challenges, um, but actually looks at them in parallel because a lot of interventions we that are deficit-based approach or a deficit model looks at evaluating that individual and then finding out what their deficits are and then working to remediate or compensate for those deficits. And that's a lot of service provision um, with this population, and um, I, which they need a lot of uh, different supports and services for areas they find challenging. But to do that and not embed a strength-based approach into the service delivery model, I think is detrimental. And I think that if we embed a strength-based approach, in addition to looking at the challenges, then we fundamentally look at uh, kids and adolescents and adults differently with autism because we actually are going in not looking solely for their deficits and evaluating those, but we're also looking at, all right, what are your strengths? Uh, so, for example, I'll give you a couple quick examples. Um, visual hypersensitivity, auditory hypersensitivity. You would ask most uh, therapists that, um, or parents, um, or 
is that a bad thing or a good thing? And I think there'd be a consensus that, oh, yes, being hypersensitive to sound and light is bad. And that's correct. But at the same time, we know that individuals that have auditory hypersensitivity and visual hypersensitivity, they see more detail than you and I. They hear more pitches than you and I. So if that's the case, what does that strength and that ability produce? Well, a lot of times for these individuals, it produces potential jobs where you need attention to a lot of visual detail or hobbies where you play music because you have the ability to hear those sounds very differently. You know, I, I work with an a, adult that's autistic and um, he describes his auditory hypersensitivity and how distracting that is. And um, he describes it in a way that uh, is clearly challenging. He can hear conversations um, several doors down. He can hear planes fly overhead before anyone else does. And it, he talks about it as being such a distraction. You know, but then he asks the question and poses the question, you know, so imagine what rain sounds to me. And when you hear him describe rain and the beauty of those sounds and how he so looks forward to the sounds and it's like a symphony with the rainstorms, that's something that you and I don't have the ability to do, you know, and we, I would love to be able to hear rain like he does. So how do we blend those approaches? How do we take a strong interest in a subject a sensory sensitivity, um, a movement ability. How do we take those and, yes, look at the challenges that those might pose, but then also really look at the opportunities um, that those, those characteristics um, may, may pose as well? Okay, that's perfect. And so in terms of occupational therapy, what um, would a strength-based occupational – you kind of described it, but – specifically with OT, what would a strength-based evaluation and intervention look like with maybe some specific examples of that? Sure, sure. So I think uh, looking specifically at occupational therapy, a strength-based evaluation does more than just give one line to what are this person's strengths. So, for example, more time is spent really looking at utilizing assessments, for example, that get, really get into that person's priorities, their goals. If they're nonverbal or non-speaking, it becomes a little bit more difficult, but not impossible. I think that if you look at how someone spends their time, you know, and what are they focused on? You know, if I'm working with little guys that are flipping through books or looking at the credits on television shows or reading computer screens repetitively, they're attracted to letters. And if they're attracted to letters, they're spending a lot of their time with letters, which actually gives me an indication that that's a potential strength. They're probably actually trying to learn words, structure and function of language. Um, so you have, to, you have to be very observant in your evaluation if that individual can't tell you, here are my strengths, here are my interests. For kids that can speak, usually those are the first thing they tell you when they walk through the door. So um, you begin to get to gather data on that during the assessment process and really utilize instruments and interviews and evaluations that really look at those that, that client-centered priority. Um, I think interventions that are strength-based actually get at the core of what occupational therapy is. You know, if I have a special interest area, for example, and the subway system is very meaningful to me and I know everything about the subway system, a, that, then, that special interest area is actually what I think we as OTs would call meaningful occupations. 
And so how do I use this meaningful occupation to not only build that ability, but also help when areas are challenging? So for example, I'll use handwriting. So if I have this individual that loves the subway and, I'm, and yet really struggles with handwriting, how do I use that interest, that strength, that knowledge base to really then um, tackle challenging handwriting? Well, you know what? We write our words on subway cars. We write out subway schedules. We make it so that it's meaningful and, and intrinsically motivating. You know, the, the power of having these intrinsic motivators versus extrinsic motivators that are just used as rewards um, really does, does lead, I think, to these individuals um, excelling more in areas that they're challenged in. So I think that it's at the core, actually, of what we do as occupational therapists. And as OTs, I think we want to move our, our clients and those that we serve into more of a self-determined life. And part of self-determination is really having the ability to master something, having the ability for autonomy and choice. And by using these interests, for example, and using strengths, you're really feeding in, I think, to that idea of encouraging and facilitating self-determination. Perfect. And so what, if, what is it about um, occupational therapy that makes it so specially qualified for using this approach? And you kind of hit on that already, but what sets OT apart from other disciplines who work with people with autism? I think that, that we have a, a really unique lens if we choose to use it. You know, and I, I think that there are parts of what we know as OTs that we are using very effectively for individuals with autism. So for example, our knowledge of sensory processing, very important when you're working and supporting individuals with autism because of, it's real, it's real. They are processing sensory information differently. It's a different experience. And so having that knowledge base and having it at a more in-depth level than just having it at a surface level, I think is really important. Um, and then that in conjunction with what we know about facilitating independence and self-determination and then utilizing the strength-based approach, I think sets us up to be the, the perfect profession to be champions for shifting this paradigm and really moving away from a deficit model. You know, imagine if you're in the school system and you're in a system where you are solely working on things that are hard for you day in and day out. You know, we don't want people leaving the school systems, and I do a lot of work in the schools at age 18 or age 21, having no idea what they're good at. And that's the danger in, in a deficit-based model where they're getting interventions, they're in the special ed system. You know, they know what they have difficulty with, you know, but how do we begin to develop that competence and I think for us as OTs, we have a powerful tool in meaningful occupation. Perfect. Thank you. And I know you worked on the practice guidelines, and so I was hoping that maybe you could just give a brief overview um, of the evidence that supports OT's role. And really just based, because it's for consumers, so just kind of high level, like what are what does some of the evidence say about OT's role with autism? So the evidence um, for OT's role with autism is in a variety of areas. I think that OTs have been successful and have shown successful outcomes facilitating social, social development, independence, and, and independence in not only self-care, but in activities of base, uh, I'm going to have to say that one again. <laughs> 
You're going to have to believe that one. Um, So the evidence shows that OTs have a powerful role in producing outcomes related to to the social area, um, looking at parenting and looking at facilitating parents' parents' competence as well as successful improvements in independence in the area of work and education and self-care and then also playing a role in having positive outcomes related to self-regulation and, and being able to handle a, a, a more chaotic sensory environment with a variety of the interventions that we use as OTs. Okay, great. And I've seen a lot more recently, especially on social media, um, with this concept of the self-advocate. So mm-hmm. we have like a whole self-advocacy network and um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, is that a goal of OT to help an individual become a self-advocate, and how does OT help them do that, and how do they kind of help them transition to adulthood? Yeah, I mean, I think that OTs can play a powerful role in developing self-advocacy. It's in our practice framework, and I think that OTs tend to think about um, when they think about advocacy, they think about advocating for their patients or clients, and this is different. This is not the therapist or the professional advocating for the the individual, but actually working with that individual to help develop their own self-advocacy skills. And that has to start early and it has to start often. And we have done projects in our ASD-NESTA program in the New York City Department of Education where we develop self-advocacy skills in our kids as young as elementary school. And that just may be what's the problem? How is it affecting you? What are some solutions that that you can think of? You know, versus there's someone that'll help you fix it, or there's someone that'll intervene for you. Because self-advocacy and research shows us this, is that self-advocacy skills actually are very important for um, post-secondary life. So how are we teaching our kids really early on to walk into a room? So instead of coming to the therapy room, well, not instead of, in addition to, in addition to addressing some of the sensory issues, for example, directly by intervention, how do we teach the children to go into an environment and do a sensory scan and look at what can I change in this environment, what's not changeable? So if there's fluorescent lighting and fluorescent lighting bothers me, what are my options? Well, if I'm self-advocating for myself, I'm going to see if the teacher can turn off the lights or use different kind of lighting. But I also have to have strategies and coping strategies and skills related to if that can't happen, what can I do? Do I wear a baseball hat? Do I wear different glasses? You know, and really working with kids to develop those self-advocacy skills will serve them really well when they become adults. Okay, great. And so those are the questions I have. Was there anything else that you wanted to um, bring up or add to um, just the idea that I think OTs and OTs are getting involved a lot with social skills groups and do a lot of work around social skills groups with autism. And I think that if you're going to utilize a strength-based approach, we've also got to shift our thinking on those. Um, and ask yourself, how, it, how are you social? You know, and what types of groups do you join? You know, and, and, and we socialize around our preferred interests. Right. So if I socialize around my preferred interest, then do I then go attend a social skills group in order to become social or do I go attend a book club because I like books? 
you know. And I think this idea of interest-based clubs um, in the movie, they're talk, it's talked about as like affinity, affinities and affinity therapy, which really I think is just good OT, quite frankly. And um, But how do I develop a my social skills? Well, I usually socialize around things I care about. So I think OTs could actually play a really big role in the social groups that they have, really looking at how do I formulate them as interest-based clubs? And then the kids that, that I are in my interest-based clubs, how do I then facilitate something that goes beyond just social skills to actually social inclusion and participation at a much higher level that is around those preferred interests where I can learn all the skills you want me to learn but it's around something I really care about. Very cool. All right. Well, that's everything I have. Uh, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, if you have any questions, just let me know. Okay. Um, we're we're going to try to get this finished and posted before the Oscars so we can kind of have the hook with the Oscar nomination. Um, but okay. I'll send you a link whenever it's ready. Okay. And, All right. Um, I- Have a good weekend. You too, Stephanie. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.